This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. ACL listeners, we are so excited today to have Stephen Knuckles, CEO of Coastal Carolina Quality Care ACO. Stephen has been a past contributor to the ACLC and did a lot of work with us on the Accountable Care Atlas. He's a good friend. We're so pleased to have him today. I'll turn it over to Eric and let him tell you a little bit more about Coastal Carolina. Yeah, Daniel, you know, I have to say, I have rarely met an executive like Stephen Knuckles, where he wears two hats. He's the chief executive officer for Coastal Carolina Healthcare PA, which is a 60 provider multi-specialty practice. And he's the CEO of Coastal Carolina Quality Care ACO. I mean, he's been managing the practice for 23 years. You know, he's a legend in that regard. And then in 2013, almost a decade now, he's been a, an early pioneer of value-based care, leading his organization to sustain success and shared savings and transforming the lives of communities and improving patient outcomes. This was such a great interview. He knows so much about policy. Steven's a, a board member of the National Association of ACOs truly a leader in our industry and such a great person to have on our show this week. So let's go ahead and kick it over to Stephen as he joins us in this race to value. Stephen, thanks for joining us today on the race to value. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, I've been looking forward to our conversation today because you have such an interesting role as a leader in value-based care in Eastern North Carolina which is the region encompassing the eastern tier of North Carolina, known geographically as the state's coastal plain region. And you wear two hats as a leader. So you're the CEO of Coastal Carolina Healthcare PA, a multi-specialty group practice managing 36,000 patients with 60 plus providers in 16 locations. And you have more than half of your physicians specializing in primary care. And that's a role that you've been in for about 23 years. And you're the CEO of Coastal Carolina Quality Care, an ACO associated with the medical practice that is currently in the eighth year of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and you have about 11,500 lives. And your ACO was an early adopter, having joined the MSSP in the first round in April 2012. So I thought a great place to start, Stephen, would be for you to walk our listeners through your journey and health value over the last decade. You know, granted, you started in fee-for-service just like everyone else prior to getting into the value-based care movement. How did it come about that you decided to transform your care delivery model to become more accountable for patient outcomes? And then how do you continue to manage fee-for-service and value-based care in your practice's business model? As a multi-specialty practice, you have many ancillary revenue streams like an endoscopy center, sleep lab, clinical lab, urgent care, imaging center with CT and MRI and so forth. How do you stay balanced in those proverbial two canoes of FFS and BBC where you can earn a margin in your fee-for-service lines of business but still maintain a value-focused provider culture? 
Oh, that's a great question and uh, probably a fairly long answer. I'll start first with uh, just kind of our history of how we got into value-based care. And honestly, I grew up in a household where I always thought, or my father, who was a physician, always thought that the value-based care was the best way to go. He always talked about, as a primary care physician, going back to his small uh, rural town in southwest Virginia, that things would move into value-based care. And he thought that he could really save a tremendous amount of money for the federal government if he could just have a direct contract. And so, you know, around the dinner table growing up with that, I always had that in the back of my mind uh, when I got into medical practice management. We formed Coastal Carolina Healthcare in 1998, and we started work on it the year before. And so all of our contracts and everything we envisioned when we set up uh, this medical practice was with the future state of being able to move toward value-based care. I don't know that we would have called it that at the time or knew it, but being accountable for cost and quality was definitely part of that vision from the beginning. In those early days, there were no contracts. So we did what we had to do to survive and thrive as a group, and we built out our specialty panels. We grew ancillary revenue streams that we would not have been able to do as small independent groups. And we really moved towards an electronic health record. We knew we really needed that because we thought that was where the vision of healthcare was going. And we really wanted to be able to track quality measures with it. Perhaps me more so than a number of the doctors who were just trying to get by in a day and, and do the best they could with managing their medical practices. I think we started doing some quality reporting back in 2010 and 2011 after we installed our electronic health record, kind of got our feet wet with a number of uh, regional initiatives around quality reporting. So when the Affordable Care Act came out in 2010 and they had the four pages that directed the Secretary of Health and Human Services to set up the Medicare Shared Savings Program, you know, I was very excited about it. And so we got a group of our physicians together and we went up to Washington, D.C., where they had an advanced development learning session set up and Don Berwick and Rick Gilfillan and others at CMS shared their vision for how the MSSP was going to work. And our core leadership team bought into that vision. And uh, that was how we started our ACO. You asked a great question about uh, balancing fee-for-service along with our value-based plans. And it is always a challenge to do that, especially in the early years. In our first contract period with Medicare, we did not achieve shared savings. It was very disappointing. We tried very hard. We really met a lot of our measures, but some of the benchmarking methodologies in those early years of the program just worked against us. And we had some difficult decisions to make as a group because we were fortunate enough to receive advanced funding through the Innovation Center as part of that first contract period. And we had hired a number of staff and mostly care managers to be able to function and help us manage our uh, population of patients. And so we hit this crossroads and I'm very fortunate that our physicians stuck with it. We doubled down on care coordination. Uh, Medicare had just started paying for care management services. And so we were able to, within a short period of time, get to a break-even point in a fee-for-service world with these care managers. And uh, that really enabled us to uh, continue our journey along with the team that we had in place for our ACO and our ACO operations. It's also very difficult to try to balance fee-for-service and the value-based plans, but we didn't struggle as much with that because we knew if we spent more money or saw patients more frequently, that it's not the actual doctor services that are that expensive. Fee-for-service and evaluation and management services amount to a very small percentage of the overall premium dollar or the total cost of care. The real big costs are in hospitalizations and in other services, and so we were able to actually expand our own services internally, work with our own teams, uh, do annual wellness visits. And even though we were spending more money in those areas, we were able to drive down our hospitalizations. Through last year, we've dropped our hospitalizations per thousand by 22% in the most recent year. And in fact, I think our uh, risk scores and our population is probably a little riskier now than it was in those earlier days, especially because we're in a prospective attribution uh, versus the retrospective that we had in the earlier days of the program. So a lot of the things that we do kind of build on each other. If we practice smart medicine and go into this in the right ways, it has not been that big of a conflict. Thanks for that answer, Stephen. Your success as a leader in value-based care is really impressive. You've led your practice to shared savings in successive years, saving at fairly high rates for four of those performance years. And your ACO is consistently one of the top performing in the nation when it comes to quality performance. 
but the success doesn't come easy. As you mentioned, the first contract period in the MSSP, three years of performance, your ACO didn't generate the shared savings. Understandably, it takes time and money to transform entrenched care delivery practices in, in the local communities and build the critical mass to successfully integrate care, manage risk, and improve quality, all while reducing spending. So how were you able to engage physicians in those years when you didn't have shared savings to maintain the economic motivation in the short term? As a leader, how are you able to keep providers engaged with the value-driven mission of the triple aim when there's not a compelling reason to do so from a short-term ROI perspective? And with physicians invariably complaining about the number of additional clicks with EMRs and being stressed with extra time that it takes to provide patient-centered care. What's the key to your success to stay the course before you reach the financial success? So in the early years, it was not easy to keep everyone engaged. Uh, We had a number of doctors who, when we didn't achieve success that first year, they got a little discouraged. But what we focused on was the majority of the physicians that did get it. They knew it was a different way of practicing medicine, but they felt it was in the right direction. And so we made the decision, or at least the majority of the physicians made the decision, that even if we didn't achieve shared savings, that it was a better way of practicing medicine. We really focused on those who wanted to get it, and we focused on the quality measures. We continued to focus on you know, transforming the care in our practices towards uh, using care managers, towards using scribes and adding to the clinical team, uh, towards building and doing annual wellness visits. And all of that helped transform the care. And as we transformed the care, the savings built over time. We had more physicians get it. And also, when we went into our second contract period, we got a new benchmark. Our first benchmark was not great uh, due to a a number of factors uh, that were going on in our local market, as well as the timing of when we entered the program. And some of the things that worked against us in our first contract period really helped us in that second contract period. Then as the savings came in the second contract, then the belief that we were going to achieve savings, then we had more of the physicians that came on board, and that helped the savings grow over time. From our standpoint, I guess in the early days of the program, I really thought that moving to risk was the wrong way to go. Uh, I didn't think that a group like ours would try that much harder to achieve savings because we were at downside risk. We were already taking on a lot of risk in the program. And so if we had been pushed into taking on downside risk in those early days, I don't think we would have stuck with the program. Uh, That's why I was very sensitive and was not in support of the program uh, in the Pathways to Success moving to take on greater risk. Now, Our practice did enter the enhanced track in 2019 when we were available and eligible to do so under Pathways to Success. We did so because we had enough experience in the program by that point. Uh, We had a proven track record of savings, and so it was much easier for us to make that transition. But if we had been earlier in the program where we had not had as much success, I don't think we we would not have uh, made that decision to take on the downside risk. And I think it takes time in this program. You have to get comfortable with the benchmark, the benchmarking process, and to understand how it's set and what you need to do to make sure that it doesn't work against you. And those are all very important things and important factors to moving groups into taking on greater risk, which I think ultimately we need to have some risk in the game, but we also need to recognize that different groups are at different periods in their transformation and that sometimes it's going to take a little more time for some groups to get there than others. Well, Stephen, you made reference to some of your results with the ACO. I wanted to spend some time getting into specific measures of cost, quality, and utilization performance. As Daniel mentioned earlier, from a quality perspective, CCHC's ACO is consistently ranked among the top performers nationally, and in 2016, had the number one quality score of all ACOs in the country. Your ACO's performance on preventative QMs for mammograms, pneumococcal and influenza vaccinations, colorectal cancer screenings, all hover in the high 80s, low 90s, which is outstanding. And your ACO has achieved superior clinical outcomes, such as reducing the number of hospital admissions by 22%, which you mentioned earlier, and ER visits, I believe, anywhere between 10 to 15% since joining the MSSP. And your diabetic patients have their A1C levels above nine fell from 18% to 6.5%. 
indicating that more patients are in control of their blood sugar levels, which, by the way, I think in and of itself is an outstanding result in New Bern, North Carolina, which is the birthplace of Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> but anyway, your cost performance has proven successful over time as well. You've been successful. You have $11.3 in total historical shared savings for an ACO that manages an aggregate budget of $120 million. Can you provide our listeners with some more context into the results of Coastal Carolina Quality Care ACO? What has been your population health playbook to achieve these results? And with your ACO doing so well in executing on AWVs, preventative care, quality, managing costs, what's next for CCHC and its ACO? Do you have any concerns at all as a mature ACO now in the eighth year of existence that there's going to be diminishing returns where you've addressed the, some of the low-hanging fruit and wrung out some of the unnecessary spend? Or, or do you still feel like you're on a pretty good trajectory moving forward to sustainable success? Oh, Eric, those are a couple of great questions. I'll start with how we've achieved our quality measures. We, number one, are very blessed that we have one electronic health record for our medical group. Most ACOs are comprised of multiple different medical practices working across a myriad of different electronic health record systems. Because in the early days, we merged and formed one group back in 1998, you know, we have that advantage of being able to work in one. We made the decision early on to not look at just our ACO patients for quality measures. We look at all of our patients, whether they're in a value-based program or not. And we have one true north quality measure that we set out for all of our populations. For example, we're not looking at each value-based contract that we have and trying to pull those patients out and treating them differently than others uh, just because the health plan wants the A1Cs less than seven. We pick our true north measure, which for us would be A1Cs less than nine. It's what Medicare has. And then we look at all of our patients, whether they have Blue Cross or Medicaid, and we focus on that population of patients. And so when we run this, we have monthly reports that we run out of our electronic health record. So we have the total population of patients, we have the total number of diabetics, and we are able to give a point of care dashboard for each of these patients. So when the patients come in, we know if they're out of goal or they are at goal. And so we run these lists each month. We also have reports each month that where each doctor is compared or they can see how their numbers are, they can see how their partners are, and they can see how the other offices or locations within Coastal Carolina Healthcare are doing. And that creates a, a competitive spirit that the doctors look at each other on each of these different quality measures and they try to do better. We've also done, I think, a good job of messaging and then following through with that messaging that if you do better on quality, you get to keep a bigger percentage of the, of the savings. So we've adopted a distribution methodology that's very similar to the ACO distribution methodology that Medicare set up. So it's similarly weighted. So if a department or one of our locations does better than another location, then they'll get a greater percentage of the shared savings because they helped us get there, quite frankly. And so the combination of the transparent reporting, having everything in one system, and being able to set meaningful goals and rewards incentive structures, I think are some of the keys to our success for driving quality that continually ranks among the top in the country. Eric, the other half of your question related to how were we concerned that over time as we reduce costs from the system and our benchmark gets lower as we reduce costs, were we going to continue to work against ourselves for an ever lower benchmark that's going to be difficult to achieve over time? Yeah, this was one of the main concerns with groups, and many did not get into the ACO program early on. It's been a, a concern of many ACOs as I have spoken to them around the country, groups that are considering forming ACOs or ones that are already there. It is one of the main advocacy points for the National Association of ACOs as well, that we need a reliable business model for ACOs to continue to be successful. And I think that we achieved that first with some of the benchmark changes that took place in 2016, and second with the pathways to success that set up a feature where you have a regional efficiency factor uh, that's worked into the benchmark. And what that means is if you are performing well to your region, that you have a certain amount of built-in savings that are there. We still think that there is a long way to go and that there's still much waste in the system, even though we've been at this for, as you said, almost 10 years now, and we're still finding ways and different things to look at. But over time, we know that if we do 
continue to lower our benchmark and continue to reduce costs and reduce wasteful spending, we know that at the end of the day, we'll still have this regional efficiency factor that will enable us to keep our costs at this low level without having them go back up over time because we're taking programs away or doing things differently at that point. So Stephen, given that your ACO is centered around a multi-specialty practice, I'm really interested in how you've been able to integrate these specialists into the value-based care strategy. In addition to family practice and internal medicine, CCHC's physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, they specialize in cardiology, neurology, sleep medicine, urgent care, oncology, the list goes on. For accountable care to really take root, you've got to have alignment with patient care and financial goals that are shared between the ACO and its physicians. So how does your practice as physicians across these multiple specialties achieve goals collaboratively as a clinically integrated, strategically aligned practice unit? Can you share with our listeners an overview of how your strategy, your governance, culture, commitment to quality, effective use of IT, how these have been able to successfully align your practice as physicians, including the specialists? I would argue that being a multi-specialty group really gives us advantages that single specialty groups do not have. For example, when our primary care physicians have a patient that they really need to be seen quickly, our specialists have been more than happy to work them in. Sometimes they will see them on the same day. For example, you may have a patient who has congestive heart failure. They go in to see the primary care clinic. We're trying to avoid an, an unnecessary hospitalization. In the past, we've been able to get them over to see our cardiologist same day. They can give IV Lasix in the office. We now have a special center set up where we can do some of these functions outside of the cardiology office, but many times just getting that consult done in a timely fashion, I think that's probably the easiest example of what we've done. There are also some other examples, for example, with neurology. Since we infuse a lot of the expensive Part B drugs, we've been able to go through and look at those lists and talk to our physicians around are the patients still benefiting from these? And in the past, we found on occasion where the physician has said, yes, Mrs. Jones is probably not still benefiting from this. I just haven't had the heart to talk to them that they are at end stage. And so I think that really creates a a dynamic where we're not really telling people to ration care. We're asking them to think about this and is the patient still benefiting from these and from some of these drugs. And they can go through the list and many times where they have been avoiding having a difficult conversation with the patient because they still want to provide hope to those patients. They've been able to go through and, you know, have some engage in some shared decision making around end of life goals, maybe making referrals to our new palliative care department to have some of these discussions. And so in that way, we can really gives us access to greater revenue streams to be able to impact that if we were just a primary care group, we would not have the ability to impact as many different aspects of the total cost of care that we do by being a multi-specialty group. Well, Stephen, I wanted to ask you also about capital investment. I mean, there are many in our industry that think that physician-led ACOs are at a disadvantage in comparison to hospital-led ACOs because they lack the capital and the administrative firepower to spin up a population health infrastructure. And indeed, transforming a medical practice and building that infrastructure and value-based care, it is expensive. And practices don't typically have the deep pockets that these health systems do to make key investments. According to NACOS, the average cost to build a medium-sized ACO is about $2 million. And for those physician-led ACOs that lack access to capital to build their infrastructure, I mean, many are having to partner with MSOs that have more of a turnkey approach. And your ACO is one where you were one of the, not only one of the first 27 ACOs in the country, but you're also one of the first five that were recipients of the advanced payment model funding from CMS which Coastal Carolina Quality Care received a much-needed capital infusion that allowed your ACO to stay 100% independent. I really would like to learn more about some of the key investments that you made during that first ACO contract period in the advanced payment model. And then looking at the second contract period and beyond, I understand your ACO started to think about, since you didn't have shared savings in that first contract period, how you could look at chronic care management and CCM codes as a way to subsidize some of the work that you're doing and care management outreach for 
high risk patients. So all that said, you know, given this evolution that you've had in the ACO, in the capital funding plans that have gone along with that over these last eight years, can you provide our listeners maybe with some insights about how you were making those decisions and how you were able to sustain over time to finally get to where you are now, where you've hit your stride and you're consistently earning shared savings. And then now that you're in that position, how much now are you reinvesting back into the ACO versus putting it into the hands of the doctors? I've said many times that I don't think our ACO would be here, and we definitely wouldn't be where we are right now without that uh, advanced funding from the Innovation Center. So we were watching this whole program, but we just, you know, the costs were expensive for a group like us to get into this, as you said. Now, the costs for our ACO are perhaps lower than others just because we are able to, by being a single tax identification number 10 in the early days, we didn't have to worry with other systems. We were able to do double duty. You mentioned early on that I serve as the CEO for both groups, and I do. When I go out to meet with the physicians on behalf of the medical group, we cover ACO items in those same meetings. So we're able to be more efficient. So for us being of the critical mass that we are, it was probably much lower cost than it would be for smaller single specialty groups that were trying to merge together to get five or 10,000 lives. We already had 12,000 lives to start with uh, in Medicare fee-for-service. So that really gave us an advantage. But the initial funding that we had, it really gave us the ability to set up our chronic care management program. We probably spent about 75% of those initial funds on that program. And we set up one care manager for every uh, 1,200 lives that we had. So we had 10 care managers. We utilized registered nurses then. Uh, we've gone through different models or iterations over the years, but uh, we're back now to using predominantly registered nurses in that capacity. The good news was that today the Medicare fee-for-service has been restructured enough that I think it's fairly easy to break even on that, much easier than it was in the earlier years. And before they had the chronic care management codes, it was uh, you know, obviously you couldn't get paid for those types of services. So I think the capital infrastructure that one needs today is different than it was back in 2012 when we were first getting started. The other critical investments that we made were in automated dashboard for doing quality measures and quality reporting. For us, that was a key investment that has continued to reap benefits today because we still use the same system. It was an add-on from our electronic health record vendor, kind of a molton, if you will. So it had a single sign-on, so we didn't have to go into two systems to try to work and take care and look for gaps in care and look for quality measures or people who weren't meeting those or to run pursuit lists. Uh, so we're able to do everything within our core electronic health record. I think that's been one of our keys to success, as I've mentioned earlier, with kind of managing populations and looking at them when we have one source of truth that we can go to. So really that analytics platform that we needed to add on the hardware for that and the software and the support and that combined with the other payments uh, that we needed, think for a data analyst and then the care managers uh, were the biggest uses of those initial funds. I mean, going forward, we've been able to pay for things now. If you, if you weren't doing a whole lot of annual wellness visits, that's also a great source of funds for practice transformation. And many clinics are set up where the physicians do those. We set our program up where we have registered nurses doing those that are trained. Uh, they spend a little more time with the patients. They usually do it sometimes on the same day that the patient's coming in for another visit. They need pharmacy consults or they need other aspects of care or closing gaps in care. We we have that team do those. We can also have some margin on that service, uh, which allows us to invest in other practice transformation for primary care. Stephen, I think an extension of that question that I'd be really interested in hearing is you know, how much you're reinvesting back in the ACO versus putting it into the hands of doctors as incentive payments. And then further, what kind of things are you investing in these days? A good portion of the shared savings that we achieve at this point are put back into the practice, which flows to the, the physicians and the staff in the form of bonuses. But we are making some strategic investments and we pull out a certain large percentage of our shared savings each year. Uh, the investments that we've made in more recent years are around our, what we call extended care. And this is a clinic that we've set up uh, that is adjacent to and part of our urgent care center. 
uh, urgent care centers open open seven days a week with a little bit shorter hours on the weekends, but we are open every day and we're open to about eight o'clock in the evenings. And so attached to that, we've hired emergency room physicians and hospitalists that staff this higher acuity center. And they have monitoring equipment, uh, registered nurses, and everything that we need to take care of a much higher level of care. And so if a patient calls in and we determine that they don't need to go to the emergency room, but that we can handle it, we will steer them to this extended care clinic. In fact, since we have this extended care clinic, our own employees, which we're self-insured on, we've been able to, for two years in a row now, have our emergency room visits per thousand beneficiaries be at right around 25. And we compare that to the Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, their statewide rate is right around 200 emergency room visits per thousand. So we're, what is that, 80, um, 90%, you know, lower than the statewide average. Now our goal is to educate our patients in value-based plans in the same way we have our own staff educated. So that's one of the areas where we think we can continue to make an impact and reduce unnecessary utilization at the local emergency rooms, which are much more expensive than this center, which is outpatient-based. It's cheaper for the patients and it's much cheaper for the systems and their employers. Another area where we are putting investments into is a palliative care service. We've just started that up in the last six months. So we've started going into some of the area nursing homes, going into people's homes. We're taking referrals from the other doctors, and we're really talking to people end-of-life care, and we're also just working with patients with chronic illnesses, patients that are frequent flyers that into the emergency room and into the hospital. We're trying to really get to the root cause of what's causing that. Many times care managers have worked, but sometimes where they need an even higher level of care, we're going to this palliative care unit. And so we don't have a whole lot of data on that yet, but it is an area where we felt we needed increased resources. And so that's a place where we're investing right now. Now, both of these clinics come nowhere close to breaking even in a fee-for-service world. So they have to be subsidized through you know, shared savings in order to get them off the ground and to have them available to the clinic. We do feel that we have enough data coming from the extended care that we're making enough in shared savings from this that we can make up the loss in fee-for-service revenue. So that's very exciting because it's uh, just a wonderful thing. We get such nice reviews from the physicians and the patients that go there that haven't had to go to the emergency room or become hospitalized. And we'll see patients back multiple days in a row if we need to. And we, we just handle a lot of uh, fairly acute situations there that in the past would have needed hospitalization or emergency room visits to address. It's fantastic, Stephen. Thanks for sharing that. I want to take a moment and just comment on how impressed we are by your value-based acumen. And you really have an extensive understanding of ACO benchmarking methodology that you mentioned in response to an earlier question. And every time we talk, it seems like we're learning something more about MSSP benchmarking processes and strategies to improve an ACO's benchmark over time, like HCC codes, cost initiatives, impact on trend. As an ACO executive, you really know how to compute performance estimates to gauge success with almost laser-like specificity. When that final reconciliation comes in 18 months after the prior performance year had started, you already know with relative confidence where, you, where you're going to land because of your ACO's financial sophistication. Not only are you an ACO operations expert, but you also understand the policy side at a great level of depth and even teach an ACO financial boot camp with NACOS. I'd love for you to share with our listeners your views on changes that were made in the CMS final rule for the Pathways to Success program with regard to regional adjustment and benchmarking methodology. Today, the regional adjustment includes an ACO's own beneficiaries in that calculation. While this has minimal impact for ACOs in urban areas with a lot of provider competition, the impact is significantly more in rural areas where an ACO covers large number of the region's fee-for-service beneficiaries, which essentially means the ACO is being measured against its own performance. What legislative fixes do you think need to be done to the MSSP benchmarking methodology to make it more equitable and ensure that all ACOs have an equal opportunity to share in the savings regardless of their geographic location? Oh, that's a great question, and that's probably one of the biggest advocacy items. It's right at the top of the list of the advocacy for the National Association of ACOs. So what you're talking about is the regional efficiency adjustment, and it's very difficult in uh, rural markets uh, such as where we are, and I think you can even go up to Pennsylvania. I think I'm not 
don't have all the specific numbers for Geisinger, but I think they're a fairly large player in their market. And so when you go to be an ACO in those markets where you have high concentration, if you do well with your benchmark, you continue to compete against yourself for never lower benchmark because you don't have, you have such a high market share that you don't effectively get that regional adjustment because you are the region in those cases. And so the legislative fix for this is what we've called the rural glitch fix. And what it would do is take the ACO's population out of the regional population. And then you would compare, your ACO would be compared to the region excluding you from it. That way you're not continuing to have to compete against yourself. We tried to get this passed and we pointed this out as part of the Pathways to Success. Ultimately, they didn't finalize uh, the regulation in that fashion. I think they were concerned with administrative complexity on their end, with being able to calculate a region and then how would they, you know, if you were the region, then what comparable region would they use? Or are you with a real small sample size that's outside of the ACO? So they did this blended approach, which is better than it was before, but it's still not perhaps what it should be because it's just very different in different markets. And so we will continue to advocate for them to to correct and fix this rule glitch. And hopefully we will have some success under the current administration. And uh, maybe as the group gets familiar with how to do the benchmarks and they're not making as many changes, maybe this could be a more gradual change that uh, the Medicare program can make in the coming years. I just want to ask, throw in another side question or an extension to this question, which is, what is your advice to ACOs and leaders of ACOs looking at the current benchmarking methodology on on how they approach it? Oh, that's a, a broad question to try to address <laughs> in looking at the new uh, benchmarking rules and how they impact because each group is so different in the markets that they operate in, you know, are just so different in how they would look at the benchmarking. If you're in a more urban setting, risk adjustment is something you've got to pay attention to. If you're not keeping up with the market, then you're going to be falling behind. So, you know, making sure that we are educating on proper coding and that we're paying attention to proper and appropriate risk adjustments is part of it, uh, especially if you're in any of these newer models, such as NextGen, which I think has another year extension of the program where they're comparing the risk adjustments for the overall group. So you're really, your HCC risk adjustments must keep up with the rest of the groups. And if they don't, then they will fall down. So if you're not staying at the same rate growth as everybody else, you're falling behind. So it is just important. I think all groups that are in value-based plans need to pay attention to their risk adjustments and that they're educating providers on doing that appropriately. You know, I hate that we focus so much on risk adjustments sometimes, especially with Medicare Advantage plans that, uh, you know, if we really want to lower costs in healthcare, you know, we really need to focus on strategies around reducing costs. But, you know, the way the systems are set up, it's kind of a necessary evil that we have to focus on that. Most doctors, I mean, they get it, but it's not part of really taking care of the patient. And we really need to focus on taking care of the patients, keeping them healthier, setting up systems for them. And I think as long as we're doing those things, the money and the other things are going to work out. Stephen, as a ACO executive and industry leader, I mean, you've been vocal in the last few years, especially early on and with your ACO, that ACOs need to transition to downside risk in a responsible way that allows for organizations to meaningfully adopt value-based care over time. And we talked about that earlier, that how it takes time to fundamentally transform care delivery. And your ACO now is in the enhanced track of the MSSP. You're exposed to downside risk. You're doing well. And then there's another payment model, the direct contracting model that will be launching its first cohort. And I'd love to hear your views on this new direct contracting model as the Innovation Center continues to develop policies for the launch of direct contracts. It has to ensure that the model's financial methodology offers uh, equal opportunity for success for both organizations that have participated in prior Medicare fee-for-service accountable care initiatives and those organizations that are wholly new to such programs. And unfortunately, as I understand, the financial specifications as they're currently laid out may disenfranchise legacy ACOs like yours that have worked for nearly a decade to lower the cost of care in their communities. And last month in a letter to the CMS Innovation Center Director, Brad Smith, the National Association for ACOs called for changes to both the professional and global options of Medicare's direct contracting model to ensure equal opportunity for success for both organizations 
that have participated in prior Medicare FFS accountable care initiatives and those that are wholly new to those programs. So as a board member of NACOS and someone who is an expert in direct contracting policy specifics, what do you think needs to be changed to the model to make it more acceptable for ACOs like yours looking to progress and taking downside risk in the Medicare program? I have followed along with the uh, benchmarking process for the uh, DC model. Our group, we have looked at it and we've decided that uh, we're better off staying in the models that we are. It does not look that different to us from some of the benchmarking looks very comparable. I know they had plans in the beginning that looked fairly advantageous with some of it, but it's really they've taken the basic MSSP program and they've made a few tweaks to it over time at least with the professional and uh, the global and the professional. And the geographic is a completely different animal. And I think it does benefit new market entrants uh, with the way they do the benchmarking process for a number of years and how they allow groups uh, to come in. I know that there's a great deal of interest in the, the geo model, and we'll just have to see how that develops over time. Some of these new people that are looking at it, I hope that they read the regulations very carefully and understand the risk adjustment and how it is different in the GEO model than what it is in Medicare Advantage because it's very different in the modeling between the two. And if they think that it's going to be exactly like Medicare Advantage, they may be in for some surprises with that. Stephen, as I think about your involvement in this, the health policy arena, I recall you'd previously briefed Congress a few years ago on improvements needed in the areas of health, IT, and interoperability. I think it's safe to say that your ACO would not have been able to attain such a high level of quality and reduction in avoidable spending without that optimized single EHR that integrated data for multiple sources, and including clinical laboratories, community pharmacies, radiology providers, even major payers and specialists outside your group. And your organization succeeded where most have not in establishing good system linkages to acquire the vast majority of this information automatically. And what was your experience during that congressional briefing back in 2016? And since that time, has our federal government done what is needed to promote interoperability and prevent information blocking? Although the two clinical interoperability provisions of the 21st Century Cures Act dealing with electronic health records have been delayed due to COVID-19, do you think the ONC is on the right track to ensure sharing of health information to improve population health outcomes? Daniel, I do believe um, our Congress is doing what it needs to do and the uh, government, what it needs to do to help promote interoperability. It is a very tricky thing from a medical standpoint, what the physicians need is the right information at the right time. Most of the time, that's going to include information that they already have in their system. Some of the time, you need to have information from other sources. And it is very tricky how to get that information in a structured manner back into the electronic health records when you need it. I remember in the early days, we were had some initiatives where our patients would go to the emergency room, and we wanted to make sure that they had access to the outpatient data. And many times, we found that they're making decisions based on the information that they have and that they've collected from the patient. And they are, I don't mean this as a criticism, they're doing the best they can with what they have and that they didn't have time to log on to our system and to look at it. There's no way you would input that data in. So we, in the early days, would put a registered nurse in the emergency room that when our ACO patients came in, we would print data. We were there to schedule appointments for them and to help the emergency room doctors in any way. As part of the transformation back in 2016, when we didn't have some of that initial funding, we cut out that service from what we were doing. And we haven't gone back to it. So I think that we learned a lesson there, perhaps, that it wasn't as great a benefit as we had hoped it would be, although we've recently entered into a contract with our local hospitalist company where we're hoping to achieve some similar help on post-discharge optimization and helping out reduce unnecessary and avoidable readmissions. But getting back to your question around operability, it's really tricky getting the right information at the right time. And interoperability is a piece of that. But even if you have the information, you have to have an incentive to look at it and get it there. Well, I think it's a great talking point in getting information in place, actually using it and having it impact patient treatment outcomes and programs. I still think there's some question marks around that. 
what's important is that we get the right information at the right time. And many times it's just basically getting discharge summaries from hospitals and making sure that we know where our patients are and when they're coming out and making sure we have the right coordination there. And information is a piece of that and making sure that we have access to it. I'm not aware of any big information blocking so much as it's just complicated in trying to get these systems to work. Many groups think if we just get all this information in the sky in a big database that people will use it. But what we found is even when we gave the emergency room doctors access to our electronic health records, you know, just the fact that they have would have to log in to it, that they just don't have time to do that in the course of a day. And so they base you know, their decisions based on the best information that they have on what the patient said and not necessarily looking at the last note or looking what labs had already been done on them before. That's just not how they're set up to practice medicine. So we're trying to get things, you know, better where we're not, you know, redoing tests that have just been done, but we really have to have incentives in place for these different players. And then we have to make sure that they have the information they need at the right place at the right time. And so I think making sure all these systems talk to each other is very important, but it is also important that we have the incentives in place across the board so that people are all working on the same team to try to reduce unnecessary care. Stephen, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I mean, you've been a leader in value-based care for quite some time, and we're now heading into this new era of health value with the Biden administration and a Democratic-controlled Congress and newly appointed HHS Secretary Javier Becerra. As we wrap up our conversation today, what are your parting thoughts about the future of value-based care in our country? Will we ever win this race to value? I don't know that we'll ever win this race to value. You call it a race, but it's really more of a marathon. And I think it's something that we will continually be working toward. I imagine that the benchmarking process is going to continue to evolve over the next 20 years and even longer than that. And we will continue to work on reducing unnecessary care and to trying to provide the best value possible to our patients. It's imperative. The system is going to evolve. We're going to have different things in place. And so, I, I can't predict. I don't have a crystal ball what the current administration is going to do. I suspect they will build on the Affordable Care Act and what has worked and what is successful in that. My hope is that the Innovation Center will do the same, uh, that they will continue to have a myriad of different programs uh, that are all geared toward the same ends of providing better care for people at a lower cost. And I'm a true believer that if you do provide incentives to do the right thing, you're going to get more of it. And so I know that if if we as a medical group continue to do the right thing, we continue to hire good physicians, we continue to train them, invest in them, and reward them for providing excellent care, taking care of people, that everything else is going to work out. And so we're going to focus on those things over which we have control. We're going to watch the future. We're going to watch the policy as it happens. But we know if we're doing the right things that uh, we're going to end up in a good position and we're going to be positioned as well as we can be for the future. And I'm optimistic about the future because I think that the Biden administration and others, uh, they do care about value. And I think they really want to promote those programs. Stephen, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just the greatest public health crisis the U.S. has ever faced. And I know the federal government right now is really focused on vaccine distribution and federal and state leaders are working extraordinarily long hours during this difficult period as the vaccine now is coming online and everyone's thinking about how to support providers and patients and making sure that we have an equitable distribution mechanism where patients can get access to these vaccines timely. I was just curious, is your practice at all working on the, on the distribution front for vaccines as they're now becoming available to the public? And what do you see as maybe some of the logistical challenges in rolling out these vaccines, especially in rural communities? Eric, thank you for asking that question. It is something we've been thinking a lot about. So far, medical practices like ours have not been invited uh, to be part of the, the formal distribution program, but we have worked over time very closely with our local health department and hospital, and we were on a call with them just yesterday about uh, vaccine distribution. And uh, in North Carolina, we have now hit the point where we are vaccinating individuals that are 75 and up. And so we were asked if we could help in that process, and so we're glad 
gladly agreed to accept uh, some of the vaccine that they have. And uh, I guess uh, we, we call it deputized. Uh, so we've been deputized to help them in this effort. And so we spent the last couple of days trying to set up a new clinic. Uh, we don't think this is something we can do in our normal clinics because we have to have a targeted population of patients. But we have used our ACO analytics to pinpoint those patients who are at most risk of developing severe symptoms of COVID. And so we have this list ready to go. I think if everything goes according to plan, we'll be sending out text messages to them uh, this evening. And then those who may not have a cell phone will be calling and follow up. We've got a team of volunteers, uh, some of whom we've pulled out of retirement uh, for nursing and for other staff to help uh, run this clinic. And we're hoping to give out uh, 700 doses in the next three days. If we can do that, I think it'll be a good model for you know how we can cut through some of the red tape. We've really been working hard on our workflows to make sure that we're logging all of this in the statewide system uh, for coronavirus vaccinations. But many of these older patients don't have emails. They don't have you know, the normal process. So we're having to go to a paper process and doing some of this on the back end. But I think that's as it should be. Uh, we need to focus on the patients and their experience and how we can get them in and out as quickly as possible and get this vaccine in arms. And then we can work uh, getting the administrative duties uh, done on the back end. Uh, North Carolina is very blessed to have an excellent Department of Health and Human Services, and we're going to do everything we can to support them and our local hospital and local health departments in these efforts. And, and if we're called on to you know, administer it directly or accept shipments, you know, we'll gladly do so in a responsible manner in getting it to those who are in greatest need first. But thank you so much for asking that question. We spent a lot of time this week focusing on that. Stephen Knuckles, thank you so much for joining us today in this race to value. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Daniel. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. I think you guys have been doing a great job uh, with the program, and I've really enjoyed listening to uh, some of the other people you've interviewed over the last few weeks. Thanks so much, Stephen. We really feel it a privilege to have you on. Thank you.